Good morning. Man, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say uh, thank you to the worship team. Golly, that... Um, God has a way to use worship, doesn't he? Yeah. I just appreciate the worship team uh, just picking some incredible songs that praise God for who he is and put us in our place. And um, I think they picked some incredible songs this morning that fit really well with this text, and you'll see why here in a little bit. But Jason, team, I appreciate you. Uh, good morning. As Chad uh, introduced this morning, um, uh, my name is Ryan Farr. I've been at WCC for about seven years with my wife, Linda, and our two boys, Micah and Silas. As Chad mentioned, I graduated from PLI in 2020 with him and, and several others that you know here, uh, uh, Ben Alexander and Tyler Bond and David Morgan. Um, and maybe just a shout out, if you didn't see our newsletter this week, came out on Thursday, we just had our most recent PLI class graduate, which is really awesome. Chase Nation, Michael Morgan, and um, Colton Beck, which is really exciting. So yeah, praise God for that. I'm excited to see new, la- new leaders being trained in, the, in this church. But I'm grateful uh, to be here with you this morning and have the opportunity to open up God's word. But before we dive in, let's pray. Uh, Father God, just humbled uh, by your greatness, God, by your authority, uh, God, humbled by uh, your will, and God, um, God, would you just help me, help this body to come under that this morning, God, to approach your word with a humble heart, and God, as I think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, that God, it's not with lofty speech or with wisdom that Paul or me or anybody else in this church comes and preaches the word, but God, that, it's, uh, that we know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified and that it's God's power. And God, I pray that this morning, that your power would strengthen the faith of those who hear. God, would you um, use this text, this incredible story, God, this incredible event, God, would you use this to transform our hearts and our minds as we come under you this morning? In your son, Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever had a run-in with someone famous and maybe you didn't know it? I've had my fair share of run-ins, but they've usually been intentional. Um, Whether I'm chasing autographs at Rockies games, something I love to do or used to love to do, maybe before I had kids, made it harder. Uh, Waiting for my bags next to George Carl at baggage claim at DIA, pretty cool, signed my plane ticket. Uh, But I have two quick stories for you this morning um, where I was in the presence of cultural greatness, and I didn't know it, at least at first anyway. The first, about 25 years or so ago, I know that's surprising, I only look like 24, um, but I was at the International PGA Golf Tournament with my uncle. Um, it used to be here, it doesn't, it's not here in Colorado anymore, and I had to pee, I had to pee really bad. And you parents know how this goes, right? You got about 90 seconds from the point of the child saying, I have to pee, till like it's all over and they've wet themselves, right? So like any good uncle, um, he found me a restroom as fast as he could, and thank goodness there wasn't a line. I stepped up to the urinal. There was a well-dressed fella next to me, and I don't remember exchanging any pleasantries. I was 10 or 11. I just had to pee, right? And I walked out quietly, um, relieved, and my uncle standing there, and he said, hey, do you know, do you know who that was? And I said, I had no idea. I was just going to the bathroom. And he said, that was David Duvall. And I'm like, well, cool. That's awesome. So apparently, my uncle found me the player's restroom, which was awesome. Um, and... And I have no idea how I got into that. Apparently security was a lot, a lot uh, worse back then or something. I don't know. But, but so now I can say my claim to fame, right, is that I peed next to David Duvall, PGA champion, world number one. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. My other story is a little more recent. 
Uh, five to six years ago, I was at a Rockies game with some buddies. We were sitting down the left field line, second row, um, and we are just hanging out, having a good time. There were some unassuming guys sitting right next to us in the same row, and we were having fun with them, high-fiving. We were heckling the left fielder together, gently, kindly, of course, right? Um, just having some casual conversation. And one of my buddies, who just is really good at meeting new people, uh, struck up a conversation, asked them who they were, where they were from, and they said, oh, from out of town, we're here for a show, and... Um, I said, oh, cool, like, who'd, who'd you come to see? And they said, oh, well, um, we actually came here to perform. And we're like, oh, well, shoot, who are you? And they said, oh, well, we're Collective Soul. And Collective Soul, I grew up in the 90s, was a big rock band in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, go listen to their music, maybe, if you want, I don't know. Um, but they were performing. It was kind of cool to sit next to them and, and hang out with them. But, you know, these, these two stories, and there's probably others, they're fun memories, right? They're silly stories. They're probably good for nothing more than that, apparently maybe a a sermon illustration, but loosely, they help us illustrate something I think God is teaching us in this passage. You know, I could interact with David Duvall, I mean, kind of, right, if you can pee next to David Duvall is interacting with him, or collective soul, not really knowing fully who they are, but then their identity is revealed. It changes my perspective. Knowing who they were gave them some kind of credibility and some kind of substance even if in my case, just relationally and not necessarily authoritatively, they didn't need my knowing of who they were to compete for a major championship or to get a gig at Red Rocks. The knowing was for me, not for them. Now, I know that God will accomplish what he wills regardless of our response and regardless of if people come to know who his son is or not. But him revealing who he is shows his character his kindness and showing us that would otherwise, what would otherwise be unknown. And that's the kind and loving heart of a father who wants to be near his children. But as with the disciples in this morning's passage, knowing who Jesus is brings substance and credibility to our fleshy minds. We start listening more intently, letting the words that we read and the disciples heard prompt us to not only hear, but to trust and obey. We've been following Jesus' early ministry up to this point, and I'm not sure if you've noticed, I certainly hadn't, but it has yet to be revealed to the disciples that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man many times to describe his authority and his earthly ministry, his suffering and his death and his future exaltation and glory. But Jesus, as the Son of God, an acknowledgement that he is fully God, has been explicitly veiled to his followers. There are only four instances so far where we've seen in Luke where he records acknowledgement of Jesus as God. When Gabriel appeared to Mary and he told her that she would give birth to the Son of God, that was in chapter one of Luke. When the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness and called him the Son of God, he did that twice. And then when Jesus cast out demons from many and the demons cried out, that Jesus is the son of God. And then Jesus quickly rebuked them and didn't allow them to speak. And then finally, more recently, uh, when Jesus heals a man with a demon named Legion and the demon calls himself, calls Jesus the son of God. If you remember, that's the story where the demons come out of Legion, go into the pigs and the pigs jump off the cliff, just recently shared in May. So what do you notice about these four instances? Jesus' divinity as fully man among them, yet fully God, is only stated by Gabriel, who's an angel of the Lord, 
demons and the devil himself. The disciples were following Jesus and had faith that he was their rescuer, but they didn't know their rescuer was God himself. The signs and miracles he performed pointed far more to him being the kingdom bringer, the Christ, than the son of God. We see a theme of many in Israel, including the disciples, asking the question, who is this? In Luke 5.21, Jesus heals a paralytic who was lowered through the roof. Scribes and Pharisees questioned, who is this? In Luke 7, Jesus was at a Pharisee's house for a meal, and a sinful woman who cleans Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes them with their hair, and the Pharisees say, who is this? In Luke 8, Jesus calms the storm and the disciples question, who is this? In Luke 9, Herod is perplexed about Jesus and questions, who is this? And again, in Luke 9, Jesus asks the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And they say, John and Elijah and the prophet and the crowds questioning, who is this? Not only did the Pharisees, scribes, and Roman leaders, people who viewed Jesus as a threat, look for answers to who this man was who spoke and acted with such authority, but his closest followers did too. The disciples followed and large crowds followed, but they were in awe and wonder asking, who is this man? And even as we saw a couple weeks ago, as Stephen showed us in chapter nine, Peter confesses for the first time, the first time that Jesus is the Christ of God. It says in verse 20, then he said to them, but who do you, Peter, say that I am. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the redeemer, the one who came to rescue them, the kingdom bringer, but he doesn't confess him as God. He and the disciples still don't fully know Jesus's identity. We heard from Chad last week that Jesus in verses 21 and 22 says for the first time again that he came to die. I'd imagine this would likely confuse the disciples and why would the rescuer have to come and die? Well, then the transfiguration happens, which is our text today, as you heard read by Sarah. And of course, today we already know the answer to who is this? Because we have the entirety of scripture at our disposal and we know how the story ends. But putting ourselves in the disciples' shoes for a moment, we can see why this question is being asked. Jesus was unlike anyone they had ever seen and did things unlike anyone had ever, ever had. And this morning, we're going to see the question of who is this answered in a profound way. The transfiguration is the first time that the disciples and only the inner circle of three explicitly hear and see that Jesus is God. That this event actually happened is actually usually called, or often, I should say, called into question or denied because it feels too far-fetched. It had to have just been a vision or something. Surely there's a logical explanation that our limited minds can comprehend. And I submit to you this morning that these words included in the scripture as part of the inspired word of God, these words are real. Despite our finite understanding and events like this not being in our realm of possibility, they are in God's. And by his power, the supernatural transforming of Jesus, the God-man, and his appearance of two heroes of the Bible in glory was real. It actually happened, and we should read, understand, 
and be in awe of it as such. I wonder if there are areas of your life you are living as if Jesus isn't really God. Maybe you believe, but you don't listen to his divine word. Or maybe you don't believe at all, but instead you've rejected him. It's easy to say and acknowledge that Jesus is God. We can know it, we can talk about it, and we can even believe it. But letting that understanding and belief transform our living is when faith takes root and the result is fruit. James says that even the demons believe and shudder. We're going to see today from our text that chosen by God, Jesus' exodus to rescue God's people from sin was made complete by God's plan for him to depart this world through Jesus' death on the cross. So our main point this morning is this. We must listen to Jesus, who God himself declared is the divine son of God and who came to deliver God's people from sin through his death. So following what God has for us in our text in Luke, our roadmap for the message looks like this. It's on the screen. We can know that Jesus is the son of God because of his divine glory in verses 28 through 31, his deliverance through death in 31b through 33, and from God's declaration in verses 34 through 36. And our response should be to listen to him. His divine glory because of his deliverance through death and because of God's declaration. And our response should be to listen to him. First, the son of God who appeared in divine glory. Look with me in verses 28 through 31. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. This is probably the part of the transfiguration that most people think of when they hear this passage referenced. Jesus' appearance being transfigured and him talking with Moses and Elijah. It's a surreal image, is it? of the Messiah supernaturally meeting with two of the Hall of Fame figures of the Bible. And it so impacted Peter that he later gives testimony to it in his second letter. The account here in Luke starts with Jesus going up to a mountain to pray, as he often did to get away and be alone with his father. After full days of teaching and healing, Jesus sought rest and peace in communion with the father, and he often brought his closest friends with him. And this time, it was a little different though. God had a greater purpose, to unveil the deity of his son to Peter, James, and John. The text says that the appearance of Jesus' face was altered. From the inside out, the essence of Jesus' deity shone through his skin to the point of altering his appearance. This was different than when God appeared to other men in the Bible. Like in Exodus 34, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the stone tablets in his hands and the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. That was an outward change because of God's glory shining upon him. Jesus' face became physically altered on the mountain because the glory of God within him was so immense that it transfigured him before the eyes of Moses, Elijah, and the disciples. 
Jesus's deity was on display. And the author of Hebrews describes the son of God in this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This was like any other manifestation of God's glory on, on, on any other human. Who is this man? This could only be God. His divine glory had been veiled even to the disciples up to this point, but now it was being revealed before their very eyes. Secondarily, it says that Jesus's clothing became dazzling white. As a result of the shining glory of his inward deity, his clothes were bright as a flash of lightning. Jesus hadn't even completed yet what he came to accomplish in his first coming, but this is a glimpse into his appearance at his second coming when he will return in this full glory to rule and reign over the earth from his throne. This was a momentary transition from the veiling of his divine glory as he walked the earth to the revealing of the glory when we will see him as he truly is, when we're in heaven with him and when he returns. With Jesus in all his divine glory stood Moses and Elijah. And these two men also appeared shining in glory. But because either they had just come from the presence of God in heaven and they shined with his glory as he will someday when we're in his presence, or because the manifestation of divine glory from within Jesus that shone upon them. Either way, this was a distinctly different appearance in glory than Jesus himself. Setting Jesus, God who came to dwell among men, apart and above but what was the significance of Moses and Elijah, these two particular guys appearing with Jesus? Well, when you think of Moses, what comes to mind? His rescuing of Israel from the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, crossing the Red Sea and leading a grumbling people while they wandered in the desert. Maybe the Ten Commandments, the establishment of the law, the rules that God established that Israel was to live by. What about Elijah? When you hear his name, what do you think of? A notable prophet, the one who didn't die, but instead was taken up in a whirlwind by a chariot of fire into heaven. Well, based on, I would say, contextual clues of Jesus' interaction with them in this situation, I believe, and most commentators seem to agree, that the presence of Moses and Elijah represent the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah, both of which Jesus came to fulfill. And we'll see in just a minute, even more so, the similarities between Moses' exodus to redeem God's people from Egypt and this event on the mountain being the turning point of Jesus' exodus to redeem God's people from sin. But Moses and Elijah didn't just come to represent the law and the prophets. They came to reveal the truth that Jesus is the Son of God who came with a purpose to finish the work of bringing God's people back to himself. Something the law and the prophets could not do. Something God's people left to themselves could not do. And after Jesus' resurrection, when he appeared to his disciples, he said this to them in Luke 24, verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus must be fully God in order to accomplish what he came to do, to die for our sins. We can't fulfill the law. The law showed us that we couldn't live up to God's standard. 
that we needed someone who perfectly obeyed the law to pay for those who are guilty of breaking it and sentenced to death. And that's all of us. We must recognize Jesus as the son of God who appeared in divine glory because that is the only way his sacrificial death could actually be sufficient to save us. I mentioned this in setting the context, but remember back to the multiple references in chapter nine when both Herod and the crowds, people that were following Jesus and listening to him, not necessarily believers, identified Jesus with incorrect guesses. Remember what they said? Some said he was Elijah and others that he was a prophet of old. God uses this moment on the mountain to refute these incorrect guesses and show the disciples that Jesus is indeed someone completely different, someone the world has never seen before. It brings us to point number two. The son of God brought deliverance through his death. Take a look at verses 31 through 33 with me. Who appeared in glory, talking about Moses and Elijah, and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Last week, Chad Barlow pointed us to the cross of Christ, that he came to bear carrying the weight of our iniquities. And in verse 22, Jesus foretells of his death to his disciples for the very first time and that his death would be filled with much suffering at the hands of the leaders of the Jewish people. This was a death that was part of God's plan since before the creation of the world, as Chad reminded us. And it was part of his plan because it was wholly necessary if God's people wanted any hope of having a restored relationship with the father they worshiped. The law that God himself established and that Moses carried down Mount Sinai on stone tablets was the righteous expectation for God's people. But God knew when he established it that his dear children would never be able to perfectly keep it. Sin would keep his people from undefiled communion with him. And again, not a surprise to God. His plan all along was to send his son, Jesus, the son of God, to die to cover the sins of the world. This was the topic of conversation as Jesus Moses and Elijah stood together on the mountaintop, all in glory, with Jesus radiating in his divine glory. Most of your Bibles, if you look at them next to the word departure in verse 31, they have a little letter or number next to it pointing you to a footnote. Those are important. So if you come across those in scriptures you're reading, don't ignore them. Take a look and see what it says. What does it say here? It says that the Greek word used here for departure translates as Exodus. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking about Jesus's Exodus. So you have Moses standing here who led arguably the most well-known Exodus ever, leading Israel out of oppression from Egypt through the parting Red Sea waters and into the desert. And he's talking to Jesus about the Exodus ahead of him that he will accomplish in Jerusalem. He would depart from the earth in a brutal death hanging on a cross he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, depart from the grave three days later, appear to some disciples, and depart to heaven and to the right hand of the Father through his ascension. This was his exodus. 
And in an upside down kingdom kind of way, his departure from being with men on the earth would actually lead to his presence with us through the Holy Spirit, which would first be given to believers at Pentecost as Luke recorded in Acts 2. Moses' exodus was about Israel's deliverance from slavery out of Egypt and towards a promised land where they would, could worship the God who loved them and was so faithful to them. This rescuing was for God's glory so that he could be worshipped, which they were prevented from doing openly under Pharaoh's rule, and for the good of the people as they were delivered from oppression. Jesus' exodus was about mankind's deliverance, Jew and Gentile, from slavery, out of sin, and into right relationship with the Father. This rescuing was for God's glory so that he would be worshipped for his unrelenting love for his people, his overflowing grace, and his faithfulness to pursue them since Adam first sinned in the garden. And it was for our good, for you and for me, so that we don't have to stay dead in our sin and left to our own good works. Jesus made an exodus, but his exodus provided an exodus for us from sin a departure of the penalty of sin for the believer, ushering us into right relationship with the Father. As it says all over the New Testament, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. But God, he sent his son to deliver us from our greatest enemy so that we could have new life in him. Romans 8 says this, starting in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If you're sitting here this morning confused by this message of once being slaves to and dead in our sins and Jesus's death setting us free and giving us new life. Or if you're openly rejecting your need for a savior, maybe because you're comfortable where you're at. Your sin isn't really hurting anybody all that bad. And in general, you're a pretty good person, at least better than some. Or because believing in a savior would make you look weak. Hear me say this. If you were to live your entire life perfectly, which you and I both know would never be possible. But then you stumbled with one little sin. You would be just as guilty as the guy who lived a life full of sin, battling the temptations of his flesh daily. No amount of good that you do could outweigh even the smallest of sin. You still might say, well, who cares? So I'm guilty, so what? Well, the God of the universe who created you and everything in it cares. He created you in his image to be in relationship with him. To love you and to care for you, to bring you the joy that is unattainable through any other person or thing. And he wants to be in relationship with you today. But living in pleasure of our sin or in ignorance to it, knowing that there's a way out but not accepting it will keep you separated from him forever. And in fact, and in misery and internal suffering in hell. We can't do this on our own. We need saving. And God has given us his own son as the savior. He went to the cross to provide a new and better exodus, 
an exodus for you and I, one that would rescue us out of sin and deliver us into his kingdom. The sins that he carried as he hung there were and are ours now and until we die. Every single one of them that was paid for fully so that you could be made righteous. And when the father sees you, he sees his son covering you. All it requires of you is complete surrender. Recognizing that you're a sinner in need of saving, repenting, turning away from your sin and trusting him with all of your heart, denying yourself and following him. This conversation between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus would set the stage for the rest of Jesus' ministry. Jesus already knew about the details of his exodus, about the details of what he came to fulfill and what God ordained. And he would leave this mountain with his three closest friends, with his eyes toward Calvary, where he would be crucified. As Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are talking, the disciples wake up from a heavy sleep. And Peter, I imagine him just awestruck at what he sees, says only as Peter could, wait, don't go, this is good. Let me build a tent for each of you so that we can hang on to this moment. Insert Peter's foot into Peter's mouth. He's used to it and humbly we can relate. Now this is Ryan Farr's opinion and the opinion of some commentators, but admittedly it's not super clear here what Peter's intent was from behind his words. You can feel free to take or leave this and I'd encourage you to study it more on your own. But I came to the conclusion that Peter's immediate response to seeing Jesus in glory was to live in the moment, to continue experiencing this for his own pleasure. He suggests building tents so that Moses and Elijah could stay a while and so that he could hang out with glory-filled, face-altered Jesus. He saw this as an opportunity to satisfy himself rather than seeking God's intention and humbly seeking how he should respond. I'm probably being a little harsh on Peter here, which is fair. He's probably excited, right? The Messiah has been promised for generations and he's here and Peter's walking with him. And now this crazy thing's happening on this mountain. And it's probably less foolish than it is short-sighted. Not to mention Remember that many in Israel thought that the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom on earth and stay. Ruling as some political figure now and forever, which will happen, just not when and how Peter and others thought. Peter's short-sighted suggestion, it even says in the text that he didn't know what he was saying, meaning he didn't understand the short-sightedness of his suggestion but his suggestion was inviting the son of God to stay and live at a moment when Jesus was talking about his exodus to leave and die. Jesus, just a week ago, told his disciples that he would suffer many things and be killed. Maybe this was the reason for Peter's knee-jerk reaction, but I think it was more his overly ambitious flesh focused on what he wanted rather than seeking what the Lord had planned. Jesus did not come to save sinners by living and staying in the world. He came to save sinners by dying and leaving this world. We should stand and be amazed at who Jesus is, be in awe of him and what he accomplished. And we should live our lives in a way that shows attentive hearts to the Son of God and the will of the Father. One practical way we can do this, as you've heard this before, 
is by daily asking ourselves as we listen to God, Lord, what are you doing? And how do you want me to respond? Jesus, the son of God who appeared for a moment on the mountain in divine glory, came to deliver God's people from death by dying himself as our substitute. We can know that Jesus is the son of God and we can live in light of this truth because he brought deliverance through his death. The final three verses of this text quickly interrupt Peter's suggestion as God himself appears in a cloud to declare that Jesus is indeed the son of God and to provide the one implication we see explicitly in this account, to listen to Jesus. Point number three, we can know that Jesus is the son of God because of God's declaration. Verses 34 through 36 say, As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is a fairly familiar scene. A cloud was commonly used throughout the Old Testament as a symbol of the presence of God to veil his glorious appearance appearance from the eyes of men who are unworthy to gaze upon the face of the holy God. Not only that, but the disciples' response of fear as they entered the cloud was appropriate as well for the same reason. Unholy men entering the cloud that is the presence of the holy God. This would make any man tremble in rightful reverence. Then God speaks from the cloud and addresses the disciples. He declares that Jesus is his son, declaring his deity, that Jesus is indeed fully God, not just a man who came to rescue Israel, but God himself who came down in flesh to rescue all people. He also declares Jesus as his chosen one. And some manuscripts say, my beloved, the one whom God chose to save the world from sin and restore the broken relationship with the father. Isaiah prophesies to this in Isaiah 42 um, that this chosen one from God would be a servant that would bring forth justice to the nations. That justice would come through the cross, paying the price for sin and justifying us sinners before the holy God. Jesus's divinity had not been explicitly acknowledged by Jesus to the disciples of the crowds. However, we do see a similar passage from the father to the son at Jesus' baptism in Luke 3. As the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, God spoke from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. God didn't need to tell Jesus in order for Jesus to know. Jesus being fully God knew his place in the Trinity. But the similarity from his baptism when God spoke directly to Jesus to now at the transfiguration when God is speaking directly to the disciples is intentional. God declared Jesus' deity at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and is doing it again at a key turning point of his ministry when he will begin preparing himself and his disciples for his death. Jesus was not just the return of Moses or Elijah or John the Baptist risen from the dead. He is the son of God, the chosen one, and there is none like him. I think it's important here to pause for a minute and consider what this means for us today. Jesus, the chosen one, was chosen to be the sacrifice for us, the sinless man destined by the Father to put sin to death 
And for those of us in the room today who have put their faith in Jesus, you too are called chosen ones. Chosen by the Father to experience the grace provided by his Son. Now called his beloved who he will never let go of. The chosen one, God's beloved, became the wretched one, taking on our sins so that we may be called God's chosen ones and his beloved. We can live confidently in that truth if we accept the gift of salvation he has given us through the Son. Immediately following God's declaration of who Jesus is, he gives a command to the disciples. He says, listen to him. This is the only explicit imperative written in this passage, and it comes on the heels of the disciples seeing and hearing that Jesus is the Son of God. This rescuer they've been faithfully following and trusting that he is their Messiah now has the credibility of being God himself, and the Father gives one command to them. This is a fulfillment of God's promise through Moses back in Deuteronomy 18, 15, where he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. This seems to be another theme that I think God's trying to teach us through Luke's gospel. And if you were with us back in May, you heard both Dan and Chad talk about the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for our English word here. And it's the most fundamental expression of the Jewish faith, referencing back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. But it's more than just audibly hearing the noise of someone's words or even understanding them. It's a call to listen up, to pay attention, and to respond by doing. Jesus should be shamad by his disciples. Those who love God have an increasing desire to hear, trust, and obey God's words. This was a command for Peter, for Peter and James and John on the mountain as they would walk alongside Jesus for the rest of his ministry until his death. But it's also a command for us today. This should be our response to knowing that Jesus is the son of God. Live as though he is the son of God. There wasn't one thing in particular that God was instructing the disciples to listen to and obey. This was an all-encompassing comment Listen to all of Jesus' teaching and obey what he says. Listen to his foretelling of his necessary death, which he's done once and he's about to do it again in verses 44 and 45. Listen to the message Jesus just shared to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Listen to the gospel that payment for sin must come through the son. If you know who Jesus is, who are you listening to? Are you shamaying his word and living as if Jesus is God? Under Jesus' rule as king of your life? Or are you living by the law, day by day, depending on yourself? For me, I know my default can be to stop listening to Jesus and start listening to myself. Thinking about what I can do to make other people happy or to make myself look good rather than trusting in him in all circumstances, and humbly living under grace and being reminded of his promises. After this command, verse 36 says that Jesus was found alone. Elijah and Moses were gone. The law and the prophets would pass away. And Jesus stood alone as the only chosen one, sufficient to complete what God required. 
I love this quote from F.B. Meyer. He says this, the door through which Moses and Elijah had come stood open and by it our Lord might have returned, but he could never under those circumstances have been the savior of mankind. He knew this. So he set his face toward Calvary. Jesus's forthcoming death was not a tragedy or a mistake. It was an exodus known beforehand by the prophets and would be a fulfillment of a divine plan. The event that just took place would be kept silent for the rest of Jesus's ministry. The disciples would not go back down the mountain and say to the other nine, guys, you're not gonna believe this. Matthew and Mark's accounts actually expand on this a little further. And for the same reason that Jesus charged them not to tell of his coming death in verse 21, or after some of the miracles and the healings that he performed, Jesus is careful not to create misunderstanding or detract from his message. What he said and came to do would be upside down to so many. And word would spread quickly about his transfiguration and his death if the disciples were to share it freely. It could become a stumbling block for growing God's kingdom and a distraction to Jesus's message of the gospel, the message that needed to be listened to. So as we close this morning and when we pray here in a minute, I want us to consider who we're listening to. There are so many voices clamoring for our ears' attention. The unhealthy or immodest content you're streaming on Netflix, your allegiance to a specific political agenda, or maybe just the daily complaints, grumblings, and desires from our own flesh. Those are such easy things to lend our ears to. Listening to them will lead to responding to them and eventually a life of obedience to them. The alternative is so much greater and will produce so much more joy in the believer and give glory to the Father. Obedience is our loving response because he first loved us. Listen to Jesus, who God himself declared is the divine son of God and who came to deliver God's people from sin through his death. Now we listen in the context of grace. Salvation comes by believing, not by doing. We're justified by faith, not by works. We no longer live under the law because the law has been fulfilled. But the law does still serve a purpose. It acts as a mirror to help us see our sin. There's a difference in living in accordance to the law and living in the light or the reflection of the law. As believers, we live in accordance to grace and we obey out of love. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you don't have the power of the Spirit in you. And you're likely to continue hearing the clamoring of noises all around you with no true peace, no true joy, no true hope, and no ultimate direction. You can't stop the desires of your flesh on your own. Your path can only lead you so far. But there is a remedy. and His name is Jesus, and he desires to be in a relationship with you, to know you, to comfort you, to guide you. And what he requires of you is that you surrender yourself to him. You put your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins and believe in your heart that he is Lord, seeing your sin, your helpless state, and putting your faith in him. And he will give you new life, life that is freed from slavery to sin and, new, and a new heart that desires to listen and obey because of what he did for you. From Luke's account of this incredible moment on the mountain some 2,000 years ago, we can all take heart and know that Jesus is the son of God and our response should be to listen to him. 
Let's pray. Uh, Lord, Heavenly Father, God, we are, um, God, we stand amazed. Uh, God, we stand amazed, um, God, at this event um, that, uh, God, that you put uh, in Scripture, God, intentionally. God, for us to learn and understand who you are as the Son of God, and many of us know um, Jesus as the Son of God. And God, we just ask this morning, God, that we take that and that we transfer that to how we live uh, God, that you would, um, God, in a mighty way, um, help us examine our hearts. God, help us to see our sin. God, help us to see where we aren't living as if Jesus is the Son of God, that we're distracted. God, I know there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of pain in this body. There's a lot of confusing things uh, going on in our lives in so many different circumstances. And God, we just plead with you. We know and we trust you, uh, God, to lead us through that. God, we know that um, you may rescue from us, or us from that. And we're grateful for it. But God, we also know that um, sometimes your intent is to lead us through it. And we just, uh, we, we, we pray that this morning, trusting and knowing that. God, as we leave this building this morning, would you help us by the power of your spirit in us to obey, to obey out of love for what you did for us. Pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.